Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, through to chapter 7, verse 1. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favourable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favourable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labours, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honour and dishonour, through slander and praise, we are treated as, impo as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So that kid song we had just before, Oh, be careful little eyes what you see, be careful little eyes what you see. There's a father up above and he's looking down in love, so be careful little eyes what you see. And be careful little ears, be careful little hands what you do, be careful little feet where you go, be careful little mouth what you say. There once was a time when uh, children's ministry had a lot of teaching about morals and good behaviour and how to be a good little boy or a nice little girl. And even parents who didn't bother going to church themselves would often send the kids along to Sunday school so that they could learn a few morals and come back home as better people that, who wouldn't give their parents quite so much grief at home. But then as we grow up, if we're still in the church and if it's a Protestant church, most pastors will feel it's their duty to preach this moralising out of us so that 
we can begin to understand that we're saved by grace. We're saved by grace alone. We're saved by faith alone. And that being good people isn't going to cut it because none of us can be good enough to get saved. And this is true. None of us are good enough to get saved. Uh, we are all sinners in need of a saviour. And it's only through the grace and the mercy of God that we can be saved. And it's only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and forgiveness of sin that we have in his name that we're saved. But sometimes something disastrous happens. It's at the point where man's theology takes over from the scriptures. And sometimes... Uh, and when I, sometimes we, and, and when I say we, I mean we people who believe in Jesus, we people who are already saved. Sometimes we get given the message that if we make an effort to, to be good, well, that's just legalism and that's not living by grace. And we can get left feeling that, that if God wants us to change the way that we live, then, then he'll just do that and we... And, and it doesn't really matter if we just continue in sin because that's okay. We're just experiencing the grace of God and God will change us the way that God wants to change us. But that's not the gospel. Now, I very purposely said that that's man's theology, not the scriptures, because the scriptures teach us something quite different. I've given today's message the title, Being the New Creation That We Are. Because today we're going to be talking about holiness. The very first verse of today's Bible reading is one of the most profound verses in the whole of the Bible. It was chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, now this is telling us that Jesus Christ lived a perfectly sinless life. Jesus knew no sin. He is the Lord God Almighty, the Holy One, and he stepped down from heaven to earth and he lived as a human. Fully God and yet human. And yes, Jesus was tempted. Jesus was tempted as we are tempted. Different temptations though. I don't know about you, but I've never been tempted to turn a, a, a stone into a loaf of bread. That, that's not my temptation. But for the Son of God, that is a temptation when you're hungry. And, so, and I'm probably tempted with things that Jesus wasn't tempted with because for him they wouldn't be temptations. But even though our temptations are different, Jesus was tempted just as we are tempted. But the big difference was Jesus remained holy. Not like me and maybe not like you. But for our sake, it was the will of God the Father for Jesus to suffer for us. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, he died for us, we know that. And often we, we focus on the excruciating pain of the crucifixion, but that wasn't the greatest cost for Jesus. And as we studied the Gospel of Mark, I, I showed you during the crucifixion and the passion of Jesus, it was... It was focusing on the humiliation of Jesus and for the all-powerful God to suffer humiliation. I suspect that that's probably a greater suffering than, than physical pain. 
But today we discover something which I think is, is even a greater suffering. Something that happened and, and I don't understand it. And I'm not going to pretend to understand it, but, but at that point, Jesus didn't just pay the punishment my, for my sins, but somehow God caused the sinless one to be sin. Now, I don't understand that. I don't know how that happens. But God caused the sinless one to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, in theological terms, this is what's known as the atonement. Uh, Jesus, who was sinless, was caused to be sin. I don't know how, but somehow our sins were transferred onto Jesus. That in him, we might become the righteousness of God. He changes us, you see. Now, I'm going to be using a few theological terms today. I've already used one, the atonement. But we're going to be using a few theological terms because this stuff is deep, really deep. And the next theological term is justification. We are justified. We were full of sin. But Jesus became the atonement for our sin, taking our sin upon himself. So now those who are in Christ, right now, who, who are those who are in Christ? Is that everybody in the world? No. Those who are in Christ, that is those who repent of sin, yield to the Lord Jesus as, the, as our Lord and have faith in him for forgiveness. That's those who are in Christ. And those who are in Christ are now justified. That means that when we stand before the judgment seat of God, the verdict is justified. That means we're not guilty. Now, this is one of the most profound verses in the whole of the Bible. But what's that phrase there that says, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God? What's this righteousness that's talking about? Is this just righteousness in a theoretical sense? All right, so in theory I'm righteous. Or is it in a legal sense? So legally I'm righteous. Or do we truly become the righteousness of God? There's a very common defence that gets given for Christians who behave badly. It goes something like this, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. Um, now you've heard that said, I'm pretty sure. Um, you might have said it yourself, I know that I have. And usually it get, when it gets said, it, it's said in the context of when a non-Christian points the finger at somebody who professes to be a Christian and calls them out for their sinful or unethical or immoral behaviour. And then somebody chimes in with, oh, I've got the answer to that. Well, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. We think that should silence all argument. But you've got you to admit that the optics aren't very good when this happens. There are some people who are not believers, who don't follow Jesus, and yet they're living good, honest, moral lives. Whilst there are some people who profess to being Christians who are immoral, 
um, unethical and just downright nasty people. The optics isn't good. But it's not only about the optics. This goes to the very heart of what it means for us to become the righteousness of God. Is it merely a theoretical righteousness? Right? So we can just continue to live the same as people of the world live, but in theory we're righteous. Or is it merely a legal righteousness? So even though we're not particularly godly people, we're off the hook because we've got to get out of jail free card. Which means, you know, if we ever stand before the judgment seat of Christ and you can say, you've been a downright nasty sort of person, and we go, oh, but I've got to get out of jail free card. I'm legally righteous. Or do we actually become the righteousness of God? Does our behaviour itself change? so that we actually begin to live in a way that pleases God. So Jesus was the perfect sinless man and that's what we become, more and more like Jesus. And the theological term for this is sanctification. Sanctification simply means to become holy, becoming holy. And so that defence, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven, it's quite wrong. I know I've said it, and you've probably said it, but it's quite wrong. We are much more than just forgiven. Christians, disciples of Jesus, are being sanctified. Now, that doesn't mean that we're instantly perfect and we're never going to sin again. It doesn't mean that at all. But it means that we are becoming holy. And if, as a disciple of Jesus, I am not becoming more and more holy, then there's something drastically wrong with my walk with Jesus. Because a disciple of Jesus, what does it mean to be a disciple? It means you follow. And a disciple of Jesus follows Jesus. And following Jesus always leads us into holiness. Now, the big question is who does this sanctification? And some people like to believe that it's entirely God's responsibility. God does it, and we're just along for the ride. We just believe in Jesus and we're saved. And if Jesus wants to change us, that's entirely his work. And in their view, if we put any effort into our own behaviour, then they want to tell us, no, 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 that's not living by grace. But what do the scriptures say? Well, let me tell you what the scriptures don't say. Never do the scriptures tell us, don't try and be good. Never do the scriptures say, don't try and live righteously. Never do they say, don't resist temptation. And never do they say, don't put effort into being a better person. In fact, they say exactly the opposite. The the whole easy believism thing, which teaches just believe and you'll be saved, it's a nonsense. It, it, It completely depends on a redefinition of the word of repentance. Chapter 6, verse 1 today said, 
we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. What does that mean? In vain would mean that he's saying don't receive the grace of God with no purpose. Don't receive the grace of God with no result. Don't receive the grace of God with nothing to show for it. The terrible, terrible cost of salvation was for the beautiful, holy, sinless one to be sin. Don't receive that costly grace in vain. To receive the grace of God in vain is the antithesis. That means it's the opposite of being the new creation that God has made us. Um, last time we were together, we spoke on chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Look, the new has come. And to receive the grace of God in vain is the opposite of that. To receive the grace of God is the opposite to being a new creation. It's like taking a farm dog and turning it into a house dog. Now, I'm going to just stick with me here. I'll explain that a bit. What is it about dogs? This is something that always perplexed my dad. I remember him used to say quite often, I don't know what it is about dogs. There's something with the most sensitive of noses love the most putrid things and I don't get it either it's like a dog comes across a dead kangaroo out in the paddock and of course it doesn't just stumble upon it it's looking for it and it finds it and what does this dog do it thinks to itself hmm what's the best thing that I can do with this kangaroo carcass that's been lying out in the hot sun for the last three days I know I'll roll in it that way I can take the smell of this, this rotting kangaroo wherever I go. And that's exactly what they do. They find the most putrid thing that they can and they roll in it. And after they've applied their essence of rotting macropod, they know, right, well, this will be with me for at least a week. I can be content and happy. Now, but imagine if you wanted to take that farm dog that's just rolled in its favourite kangaroo carcass and you want to turn it into a house dog. Now, that, that, that had never happened in my house. Um, I was brought up that dogs weren't allowed in the house yard. Um, of course, now that I live in town, they have to live in the house yard, otherwise they'd be in the street. But cats weren't allowed inside, dogs weren't allowed in the yard. But some people do, they like to have a dog in the house. Now, imagine, and this is, this is a good illustration of what it means for our salvation, right? Imagine you want to take that farm dog and bring it into the house as a house dog. What would you have to do? You'd have to take that dog and you'd put it in a tub of hot soapy water and you'd scrub and scrub and scrub and scrub until you get that dog clean. You might even put a bit of perfume in the water or something so that it smells nice. And some people might even give the dog a bit of a blow dry when they take it out so it's all nice and fluffy and ready for the house. Now that's what it's like for us to be saved. I don't want to offend anyone here, but we were putrid with sin. But we've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. 
by the grace of God, we have been made holy. And to take that grace of God in vain is for us to go back sinning again. It's like if that freshly scrubbed, cleaned and blow-dried dog going outside and finding a dead goanna to roll in. You see, the thing is, grace isn't only a once-only application. Grace is like a river that continues to flow. It's like a tap that doesn't dry up. Now, I don't know about you. Well, actually, I do know about you, but I'm not going to use you guys as the example because I, I don't want to offend you. Um, I don't want to make you guys look bad, but I'm sure you won't mind if I look bad. So I'll use me as an example. Even though I am forgiven, and even though I'm trying not to sin, I still do. And so I have to keep repenting of my sin. Over and over and over again, I have to keep repenting of my sin. God, I've rebelled against you again. Lord, I'm going to try and do the right thing. Lord, will you help me to do the right thing? Lord, help me to live righteously as your child. Lord, help us to truly conquer this sin this time. Is this resonating with anyone? Does anyone else have that problem? It might just be your pastor. It's okay. I'm the most sinful one here. But God's grace doesn't stop. It just continues to flow. And every time I repent and ask for forgiveness, he forgives. Don't now, don't ever receive the grace of God in vain. Don't ever come to the position where, well, I've tried to repent of this sin so many times, but I'm still doing it. Therefore, I'm just going to give up trying and we'll just move on to something else. Don't, Don't now and don't ever take the grace of God in vain. See, to take the grace of God in vain is to be like that dog who isn't changed. You see, no matter how much you take that farm dog and clean it up and bring it into the house all nice and fluffy-like, that dog's desire is not to be fluffy. That dog's nature remains the same. Its desire is to find a dead kangaroo carcass and roll in it, or a dead goanna, or a dead something, anything. A bit of poo will do if that's the only thing it can find that stinks, and it'll roll in it. Why? Because it has remained the same. It's the same creature it always was. It's still wired to love the putrid. And that's the difference between that dog and us. For us to become, we've become a new creation. We are changed. And we're not just changed, we become a new creature. That's what this new creation business is about. Our desires change. Our desire turns from the things of the world, the things that were putrid, the things that were sin that we used to love and enjoy. Now we feel tremendously guilty about that because our desire is not for that anymore. Our desire is for Christ and to live righteously. And so we're not, we're not just theoretically righteous. And we're not just legally righteous we are the righteousness of God 
because he's made us to be a new creation. Now, we don't achieve this on our own. The Holy Spirit living inside of us is helping us to live by the Spirit. But Holy Spirit doesn't do it on his own either. And this is the thing. We work together with God. We work together with the Spirit to live righteously. And that's why Paul is appealing to the Corinthian church. He says, I appeal to you. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. Now, why would he be appealing to them if they didn't have a part to play in this? Of course they have a part to play in this. Of course we have a part to play in this. And to illustrate this, in two places in today's reading, Paul quotes from the prophet Isaiah, as well as a few other Old Testament verses as well thrown in. The first quote comes from Isaiah 49, verse 8. It says, this is in verse 2. It says, for he says meaning God says, in a favourable time I listened to you and in a day of salvation I've helped you. Now, let me give you a bit of an insight into what we're looking at here. Isaiah was talking to the people of Israel who were in captivity in Babylon. All right, so Israel had rebelled against God. And God had warned them through the prophets over and over and over again, turn away from these other gods and come back to me or else... I'm going to punish you. And they didn't listen. And it wasn't only that, it was the things that they were doing. They'd been, they weren't looking after the widows or the orphans. They were just in it for themselves. The priests were, were particularly unholy sorts of people. And God had warned them so many times and given them so many opportunities to repent, but they wouldn't. And so finally God said, all right, I'm going to hand you over to, to the regional superpower. So the regional superpower at the time was Babylon and they gave them a jolly good flogging and they took them out as captives not the whole of the nation just the leaders and the educated people they took those into captivity and took them back to Babylon and they'd been there for 70 years but the prophet Isaiah was making this prophecy that that there would be a time when they would be brought back out of Babylon and they would be brought back to the promised land. Now, this was something that they couldn't do for themselves. Slaves of a superpower don't have the capability to get to ensure their own release so they can go back home again. This is something that God was going to do and something that God did do for them. So that's the setting, and he's tying it to this time. And then when it gets to chapter 6, verse 16, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 52, verse 11, which is in the same section, but it's a little bit after. And he ties it in all together with a few other Old Testament passages. And he says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. All right, so Israel, when it came time for their release to come out of Babylon, they were going to have to do something. They are going to have to work with God in this. God, God was the one who was going to bring them out of captivity. 
But when they got to the promised land, they were going to restore the temple. And that's where God was going to live. God was going to live in their very presence. Therefore, if holy God was going to be living in their presence, guess what? They had to get things holy. They had to leave behind the pagan ways that they'd been living by for 70 years in Babylon. And they had to separate themselves from unholiness. So Israel had a part to play in this, and, and so do we. And by the way, those passages that are again quoted, that they're what's known as the, the suffering servant passages. And sometimes in the, in the prophecies of the Old Testament, it has a double or a triple fulfillment. And so in those suffering servant passages, yes, it was talking about being brought out of captivity, but it's also looking forward to when Jesus comes. Right, so let's come back to chapter 6, verse 2. says, For he says, meaning God says, In a favourable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I helped you. He's talking about the original prophecy, was talking about when God brought them out of Babylon. But now Paul says, But behold, now is the favourable time. Now is the day of salvation, right? This is the double fulfillment. It wasn't only when God brought them out of Babylon, it's also when God brought us out of sin through Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have that same promise that the, the Holy One will actually be with us. So God was going to live with them in the temple in their very midst, and so they had to be holy. But this is a day of salvation for us. God is living with us. And then Paul launches into what we covered last week, that the example of holiness that, that Paul and his fellow missionaries lived by, for Christ. They, lived, they showed it by great endurance, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God. Right? That's the attributes of the disciples of Jesus. That's the holy way to live. And that, that stuff, that doesn't just happen naturally. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. That, that's the fruit of the Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit is a help to us to live righteously, but it's more than a help. It's a motivation. It motivates us towards righteousness. I, I really struggled with what word to use here. And for a start, I was opting between the words exalted and humbling. Now, those two words sound exact opposites. Um, but in this case, they can both be used. And I eventually decided I'd use the word humbling. What a humbling thing it is to be the temple of the living God. What a humbling thing it is to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. But you could use the same word exalted. What an exalting thing it is. It is we are exalted that God chooses to live in us. So you can see why it struggled with which word to choose. Royalty deserves the very best lodgings. Uh, 
In the news over the last couple of weeks, everybody's jumping up and down at the moment because Prince Harry and Meghan have announced that they're stepping down from public royal duties and, and they want to live a more self-directed life. But of course, people are wanting to know, well, well, well but what about that Frogmore Cottage that, that you're now living in? And it's, and it's a quaint little name, isn't it? Cottage. When it, I'm not sure what it was after the renovations, but it was a ten, ten bedroom house at one stage. Cottage. Hmm. Um, but, but imagine this, you know, that millions of pounds of taxpayers' money was spent on the renovations. You know, imagine what it'd be like if your house was like, like that, if the renovations cost more than the equivalent of four million Australian dollars. Royalty like to live in the most lavish, the, the best lodgings. Where does God choose to live? Where does God choose to live? This isn't a rhetorical question. I'm looking for an answer. In us. God wants to live in us. We are the temple of the living God. You are the temple of the living God. And you're not just his Sunday home. Yeah, you know some people have a holiday home or, or a weekender or whatever. We're not just God's Sunday home. God lives in us 24-7. Under the old covenant, everything about the temple, which was where God was living, was to create a, a place of holiness. All of the sacrifices, all of the cleanliness procedures, the whole purpose was to make the temple holy, to make the priests holy, to make the Levites holy. Because unholiness has no place in the presence of God. And this is where I, I, I came across the word I should have come up with all along. Fearful. What a fearful thing it is to be the temple of the living God. Most of us amend our behaviour depending on what company we're in. I'm always mildly amused. It doesn't happen as much now because people around town know me. Um, but, but there once was a time where you know, somebody would meet me and they didn't know who I was and we'd be chatting away and they'd be swearing away and they'd drop the F-bomb here and there and everywhere and, and then in the conversation, I'd say, oh, so what do you do? And, and they'd tell me what they do and then they reciprocate, oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor of a church. And they go, oh, sorry, Father. And it's strange, they always call me Father. Um, must be coming from an old Catholic background or something. Um, but from that point on, they know who I am and they change the way they speak. School kids. Ellen, are they extra well behaved when the principal is in the classroom? They were in my day. We were the most best kids. Um, we're always very careful what we say if we know that what we say is being recorded. Does anybody change the way they drive if there's a police car be in front or behind you? Robin does. Yep, some of you do, or you're just nodding to say, yes, Robin does change the way she drives. I, 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 I hear what you're saying, yep. Oh, the hardest thing is if the police car's in front of you and you want to overtake them, but you're just not quite game. I have done it before, by the way, because they were just under the speed limit and I went to the speed limit and went around them. Yes. But we change our behaviour depending on who's around. And most of us, whether we're conscious of it or not, 
We amend our behaviour depending on who's there. Now, this is where it gets down to what you truly believe. Do you truly believe? Right, you know it theoretically, but do you truly believe that you are the temple of the living God? That God is with you. You are in the company of God 24-7. Do you truly believe that? Now, if you do, that's got to be a pretty good motivation for amending our behaviour. And so Paul says, chapter 7, verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, what promises is he talking about? The promises that God is with us, that, God, that we are the temple of the living God. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You see, when it comes to the presence of God, humbling, that's not a good enough word. Exalted, that's not a good enough word. And that's why I was struggling with which word are those to use. And neither of those is the right word. Fearful is the right word. Bringing completion, sorry, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And you notice the language that's being used here. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to the completion in the fear of God. Righteous living. It's not an optional extra. The presence of the Holy Spirit helps us to live righteously, sure. And I thank God that he does. But the presence of God also motivates us to work with him in this. If we leave holiness half done, that's taking the grace of God in vain. And to my shame, there's times when I've done that. I've taken the grace of God in vain. I've left holiness half done. See, God has made us a new creation. Therefore, be the new creation that we are. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's where we're going to leave it for today. Next week, we're going to carry on this theme of holiness. Now, take it a bit further because there's stuff in that reading today that we haven't covered yet where he's talking about separation, separating ourselves from, from things that we shouldn't be. And, and don't be unevenly yoked. And we're going to talk about those sorts of things because it's a bit hard for us to reconcile. You know, well, well, Jesus, they used to get up him for hanging out with sinners and now we're telling we have to be separated. So we're going to talk about what that means and in what way we are separate and in what way we should engage with, with the, a sinful world to bring Christ to them. But that's for next week. But as we finish off now, I'm going to play a song up here shortly. And during this song, I want us to be in an attitude of prayer. Praying, Lord, help me 
to make the alterations that I need to make in my life so that I can be truly holy. Lord, I know that you're living inside of me and because you're living inside of me, I want to truly become the righteousness of God. I don't want it just to be some kind of theoretical righteousness. I don't want it to be just some kind of legal righteousness. I want to truly become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that it was for our sake that Jesus Christ, you made him to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And Lord, we confess that we've done exactly what Paul is warning that Corinthian church not to do. Lord, we have taken your grace in vain and God, we ask for your forgiveness for this. And God, help us not to do this anymore. God, help us to be the new creation that you have made us to be. Lord, once again today, we repent of our sin and we turn our hearts towards you so that we might truly be the righteousness of God. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a knowledge and a feeling of joy knowing that you have set us free yet again, that your grace just continues to flow, that we are indeed pure and holy, not just theoretically, not just legally, but we truly are holy in the sight of God and in the presence of God. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to dwell in us. Make us to truly be the temple of the living God. In the name of Christ. Amen.